0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: This is a story about two men called Luis Eduardo and Emmanuel. It's a story about the frightening early days of the coronavirus lockdown, and about what the pandemic has revealed to us, about how we live, who we value, and how we are governed. At the start, when a terrifying silent killer moved rapidly around the world, there was some talk about COVID-19 as a great leveller. The virus was indifferent to wealth and status. It could even come for the Prime Minister in 10 Downing Street. But as the cases rose and the deaths mounted, we learned that this health emergency was not a leveler at all. It didn't take us long to understand that, in fact, it was going to exaggerate inequalities in Britain and other countries. Wealthier, more educated white-collar workers stayed at home. Blue-collar and essential workers kept on going in. If you're poor and non-white, you are more likely to contract coronavirus. We know deaths have been higher amongst black, Asian and minority ethnic populations, and that if you live in poor housing in deprived urban areas with existing health issues and the kind of job that puts you in contact with the public, in shops, on buses, on security, you are at greater risk. I'm David Taylor, and welcome to the Slow Newscast. This week, we want to tell the stories of Luis Eduardo and Emmanuel because they illuminate all of these issues and more. And because they were scared and they didn't get much help and they had to keep going to work. And because while the British government was telling people to stay home and save lives, Luis Eduardo and Emmanuel were going to work for the British government.
0: Slow News is a podcast made by us, here at Tortoise. We're a news publisher, in an app, online, in our daily sensemaker email, and, as you already know, in podcasts. What's different about us is that we investigate what's driving the news, and we'd love for you to join us. By becoming a member of our newsroom, you'll get access to our journalism, and you can join our open news meetings and help decide what matters in the world and how we should report it. To get access to all of Tortoise, all you have to do is download our app and take the free trial. Go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash pod trial and help
1: make the news. I'm with the investigative reporter Jack Schenker. Hey, Jack. Hi, Dave. So, Jack, you've spent the past two months looking into a story about what happened in the first frightening weeks of the coronavirus lockdown inside one of the biggest British government departments. Can you tell me, first of all, who are Luis Eduardo and Emmanuel and what were their jobs?
2: Luis Eduardo uh, worked on the day shift and Emmanuel on the night shift. And they both have, in some ways, very similar tales of moving from their home countries, living in various places around the world, eventually making their way to London to start a new life. So Luis Eduardo comes from Ecuador originally. He moved to Europe in 2002 and lived in Barcelona working in construction, but eventually came to London in the early 2010s, where he said to me, everything felt completely different. There was no place like London, no place like England in the world. He was incredibly excited about the prospect of living in Britain He thought it would be an exciting life and he thought it would potentially be a lucrative life. He could earn a fair bit of money and send it back to his family in South America. And he began working as a cleaner in Debenhams, in the Trocadero and eventually at the Ministry of Justice, the huge government department in central London.
1: And he was here with his wife, I believe?
2: He met his wife, who is British, whilst salsa dancing. Uh, They were both in the class, their eyes locked across the room, and the rest, as they say, is history. And his wife has been a huge source of support for him, she told me that uh, Louis Eduardo is an incredibly proud and dignified uh, human being, and that he's always determined to stand up for the rights of himself and others.
3: His number one thing is when he, you know, he will come home and he's frustrated, and he says, he will say, "I am somebody, you know, and you know they're soaking up. We're not the dirt that, that we clean, and you know, he's like, I'm not with me. I have dignity. I, he's always, I have dignity. I have dignity." You know, I might not earn this and I might not have this, but I have dignity. He's always, that's his number one thing, to have dignity in what you do.
1: And how about Emmanuel?
2: Well, Emmanuel's story in some ways is very similar to Louis Eduardo's. He arrived in Britain, having made a journey from his home country in Guinea-Bissau, which is a small country in West Africa via the Ivory Coast and Senegal and then Portugal and I spoke to one of his relatives who's called Dominic.
4: Because his father died, uh, when, he was, uh, he died when he was too young. Father died when he was so young. So to take care of the family he must go out from Guinea-Bissau because there there is only farming and not uh, any job. So he passed by Senegal
1: and
2: then, like Luis Eduardo, eventually made his way to London where he dreamed of earning enough money eventually to be able to build a house back in his home village and reunite all the members of his family who currently are scattered across several countries and continents.
4: Uh, lately, he said, oh, there is no job in Portugal, you see. And, uh... Uh, I must uh, do something to build my house. So he was uh, dreaming that uh, when he arrived in London, you'll have a nice life. And uh, he arrived there. When he arrived, the first thing, it, he, he was shocked about uh, the, the, the job he had.
2: And he was on his own here, right? He was. He desperately wanted to bring his wife, Nanetta, who lives in Lisbon, Portugal, to live here with him, but he could never afford to do so. Uh, in fact, his income was so low and precarious that he couldn't even afford a basic rental contract in London and ended up informally crashing uh, with a friend in
1: Plaistow, East London. And before the coronavirus hit us all, what were their lives like?
2: The life of a cleaner at the Ministry of Justice is a hard and relentless one. The cleaners earn just above the minimum wage. It equates to about £60 a day on normal working hours or £300 a week. For most of them, that barely covers the cost of their accommodation. And so as a result, they work far longer than a normal working week. Uh, some of the cleaners actually work over 80 hours a week. And at times, cleaners that we've spoken to have even worked 22 hours a day across different buildings, different government departments. And Luis Eduardo himself told me how difficult it was to live this way. you
1: have to work.
3: There's otra cosa. So he said that it's um, very difficult to to live here, uh, live up this way, especially when she doesn't speak the language. He said, but you have to work, you know, you have to pay for transport, you have to pay bills. There's there's no other way, but it's it's
4: very difficult.
1: And again, to be clear, they are working within the Ministry of Justice, but they do not work for the Ministry of Justice. What's the sort of arrangement and what was happening in terms of support when it came to PPE, equipment, protection, that kind of thing?
2: That's right. Cleaners at the Ministry of Justice work technically for a private company called OCS. From the smallest
0: of beginnings, OCS is now an extended family that reaches around the world. As our business has evolved and expanded over the last 12 decades, we've remained true to our values and to our people.
2: Which is owned by a family called the Goodliffe family, who are worth £191 million. They are listed on the Sunday Times Rich List. And the contract between the Ministry of Justice and the OCS is shielded from public view because of commercial confidentiality, uh, even though it's taxpayers who, who foot the bill. But what we do know is that the Ministry of Justice pays OCS £17.5 million a year to provide it with cleaning services, with catering services, with security guards and other bits of what we call facilities management operation. In their headquarters. Now the workers have employment contracts with OCS and this allows the Ministry of Justice, even though it's the ministry that essentially dictates what the scope and nature of these cleaners' work is, it allows the ministry to say, well the pay and conditions of these cleaners are not our responsibility. So what was the typical day at work like for them? So for Emmanuel, the night shift cleaner at the Ministry of Justice, His working day really began in the early evening, as many of us would be coming home. He would emerge from his small home in Plaistow, East London, and come out into the street, which runs at the back of a tube line. And from there you can see Canary Wharf and the skyscrapers of the Isle of Dogs. And he would travel right across London, to St James's Park, where the Ministry of Justice headquarters were located. During his shift, he and his colleagues would be responsible for cleaning 50,000 square metres of British government office space. In one shift, an average cleaner would walk several miles. They would clean toilets on multiple floors. Uh, until five o'clock in the morning when, as the sun was coming up, he would get back on the Tube and return
1: home to East London. And so if we think back, all of us remember it was the 23rd of March when Boris Johnson announced the lockdown and told us all... You must stay at home. What happened to them at that point? The cleaners
2: were baffled and confused by the situation. Many of them used this phrase to me. They said, we were cleaning on the clean. There was nothing too clean. They were, the the carpets that they were sweeping were unwalked on and the toilets they were scrubbing were unused. They had no idea why they had to be there when only a tiny handful of the several thousand civil servants that are normally working in the building were still coming into work. And they described to me, How scary it was to be walking these miles of empty corridors with nobody but the occasional security guards in sight.
1: It's really reminiscent of that feeling that we all had probably in that moment where you were allowed out for an hour a day and you'd go sometimes into, you know, deserted streets and it just felt so wrong and heavy, didn't it?
2: Exactly. A sort of strange, eerie silence. Not a relaxing one, but a disturbing one. But all of these cleaners had to get public transport to work and then most importantly were circulating in the building in small teams and coming into contact with one another. And they were afraid that if one of them got ill, particularly because these cleaners don't get any occupational sick pay, Uh, So if they stay at home, they only get the statutory sick pay of £95 a week, which is not enough for anybody to live on, that if any of them got ill, they would share it and spread it among their colleagues. Mm. And did any of them get ill? They did get ill. One by one, a sickness, which certainly was consistent with the symptoms of coronavirus, began spreading through the workforce.
1: What did Luis Eduardo and Emmanuel do? Uh, Luis Eduardo got
2: sick very early on. In fact, we believe that he was the second cleaner to contract an illness during the pandemic. On the 24th of March, which you might remember was the first day after Boris Johnson had announced a nationwide lockdown, Luis Eduardo began to feel ill and stayed at home that day. He emailed one of his managers, and we have seen this email, in
3: which he explained that he was feeling ill. Good morning, Ross. I have not received any notification from you or the company regarding a response from Boris Johnson's announcement of the UK lockdown. Nothing has been communicated to me on what steps to take except that which is on the news. I've tried to reach you at the office, but every time I've looked for you, you haven't been in. I'm not feeling well. I have a headache and an upset stomach. It is at this time we need clear, concise leadership from
2: management. And he referred to another cleaner who was already sick and had been working at the site whilst displaying symptoms for several days, but had now been told to stay at home. And pointed out that these were symptoms consistent with coronavirus, that he was worried that he had now contracted coronavirus, that his wife had contracted coronavirus, And desperately asked for more information and guidance as to what the cleaners should be doing, for more protective equipment, and crucially for a guarantee that if cleaners did need to stay at home because they were potentially sick and wanted to avoid infecting anybody else, that they would still receive their wages. He was stonewalled on all of those. And did he make the
1: decision to stay at home at that point?
2: He did make the decision to stay at home. Nobody uh, had told him to. Nobody had given him any uh, information about what he should do if he felt sick. But he took it upon himself uh, to stay home. At the same time, his wife developed similar symptoms and she spoke to us very, very movingly about just how tough that was. By
3: that Monday, he was in the bathroom and he turned around and he looked at me and his all of his eyes were red like there was no couldn't even see the browns of his eyes it was just all red and I I just like like this like okay this is really serious you know and then he started coughing and then he was just talking gibberish like I was like what's wrong with you why are you saying that not knowing that he wasn't getting enough oxygen you know so we were still learning as you know as everybody was at, at the time so by the second week, and we were trying everything, his family was calling. You know, it was, it was just so bad. And then he just started to break down. He was just, because one minute we f- thought he was getting better, then he would get worse. Then now I start to start coughing. And I start to have fevers. And so I'm looking after him, but now I'm like, I can't keep going as well. And so he, we he ended up calling the one-one the number again. And they said, no, we're going to send an ambulance for him. But by that time, the ambulance had come through the gates and they came around. so I went out, met them at the gate and they said that, well, we still want to come in and see him. And so they came in and they checked his oxygen levels and they were low and they were like, we want to admit him.
1: Emmanuel was in a different position, wasn't he? He's living in London alone. I think I'm right in saying his wife is in Portugal. That's correct. He did not feel like he had the financial
2: uh, support or or security blanket to take any time off. He was also, as we know from interviews with his relatives, in perpetual fear of losing his job. He thought that if he ever took a day off, because the work was so insecure, he would invariably end up being fired. And so he forced himself to keep going.
4: Like when we talk with Emmanuel, I ask it, Emmanuel, are you so far walking? He said, yes, we are so far walking. I say why? Yeah. Everyone is locked down here and you are so far walking. And I told him, take care of yourself, right? Eh? Because uh, take care. He said, yes. He was only threatened about uh, losing the job, you see. Yeah.
1: So we're in April now. Luis Eduardo's at home. Emmanuel's still going into work. And by certainly the third week of April, he's really quite a sick man, isn't he? Absolutely. Emmanuel's
2: symptoms worsened uh, by the day. Uh, They started with a sort of general fatigue and a really intense uh, type of uh, muscle ache and headache. And then they developed increasingly into a fever. Um, His housemate began to notice that Emmanuel was struggling to put his shoes on in the morning. And his wife, told us that Emmanuel had said on the phone that he thought he was suffering from a very bad flu. She and other relatives.
0: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's com
2: slash upgrade. ...who were in different countries, like Portugal, like France, urged Emmanuel to stop working and to seek medical attention. Uh, Nanetta, Emmanuel's wife, said to me, I told him... In Portugal, we're in quarantine. Why are you still going into work each day? Why are you putting yourself at risk? And Emmanuel just replied, I have to. I have to work. I have to keep going in. And in fact, by the 22nd of April, when he arrived at work, his condition had deteriorated significantly.
1: And I think you told me that when he was going in on for the night shift on April the 22nd, By the time he got to work, he was so ill he could barely stand.
2: One of his colleagues, also on the night shift, who we've spoken to, told us that when Emmanuel arrived for work that evening, he was so uh, disorientated and dizzy that he barely knew where he was. This colleague took him aside and asked him what was happening, and Emmanuel said he didn't know. He didn't know what was happening to his body. He didn't know what was happening to his mind, but he did know that he hadn't eaten for a week. Even then, even in that situation, Emmanuel said he wanted to work. He wanted to complete his shift. He was sure that he had to complete his shift. The colleague tried to persuade him to call an ambulance, but Emmanuel refused. In the end, he allowed himself to be led back home by this colleague. And the colleague told us that When they got to Victoria Station, which is one of the main tube stations near the Ministry of Justice headquarters and a station that Emmanuel would have passed through every single day, Emmanuel had no idea where he was. So, Jack, what happened next? Did he seek medical help? Well, we know that uh, by later in the evening, his condition had grown so bad that his flatmate, who was now back home, decided to call an ambulance The London Ambulance Service uh, attended to Emmanuel at his home at 10.30pm that evening. And at midnight, Nanetta got another call. Nanetta had been waiting anxiously all evening for news of Emmanuel. He had promised to call her at some point to let her know that everything was okay. But the next call she received was at midnight London time. And it wasn't from Emmanuel. It was from Emmanuel's housemate. And he told her that Emmanuel had passed away.
1: Let's just return to Luis Eduardo. What happened to him at this point?
2: So Luis Eduardo, he told me that it was as if the inside of his body was covered with wounds. He said at some point he felt so ill that he couldn't eat, he couldn't sleep, he couldn't stand. He often ended up lying on the floor. When paramedics attended Luis Eduardo, they discovered that his oxygen levels had fallen dangerously low. Luckily, they were able to treat him there on the scene and he didn't have to go into hospital. And eventually, many, many weeks later, Luis Eduardo made a full recovery.
1: It's interesting, isn't it, that you have one man who is able, because he's there with his wife, living as a unit, to make sensible decisions that are good for his health. And, and, you know, he's living in a nurturing sort of environment. And the contrast is just obvious that Emmanuel's sort of on his own and feeling the burden of having to keep earning and and isn't making good decisions, it seems.
2: Absolutely. Louis Eduardo's wife herself said to me that she couldn't imagine what it must have been like to go through the experience of suffering from this kind of illness and not have any close members of family there on the scene to support you either financially or emotionally, she actually got very tearful uh, and, 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 and and very moved uh, when she was reflecting on the situation that Emmanuel was in. And she pointed out that she believes that if Louis Eduardo hadn't had her support and the support of close family members, that he might well have suffered the same fate.
3: You know, it was just the phone calls, just that that they were there and that gave him that oomph because you know sickness is sickness but then when you start to give up in your mind you can give over into it can't you and that's what sort of helped him you know strengthened him but he was just getting to the point where he was just like this and crying and getting depressed and I'm trying to act all this and that but I'm going in the room I'm crying but I just don't want him to see it and it's just very hard when you Imagine how people that are older and all of this, and I don't get it. It's not like you're asking them for millions. You're just saying, "Can you continue to pay me because I'm sick?" And you know, just decent human behavior. You know, we have neighbors here that we don't even know, and we have a group here. We'll get you this, and they're dropping stuff up outside. I mean, just like community, just decent human beings. I just, I, I, don't get it. I don't get it. I just don't get it. So I'm getting, I got emotional, but it, it was
0: tough.
1: The struggles for Emmanuel's family didn't end there, did they?
2: Yeah, in a way, Emmanuel's experience in death reflected the experience of his life in England in that he somewhat slipped through the cracks. His body disappeared into a maze of pandemic bureaucracy. His family, most of whom were abroad, remember, and the vast majority of whom don't speak English, struggled day in, day out to locate his corpse. They had to battle to discover where his belongings were. Those belongings had been removed by police officers who attended the death scene as a matter of routine.
1: I must admit, I found it, I found it very affecting that it seemed like more care was taken of his possessions after his death than about the man as he was struggling with this terrible health crisis.
2: That's certainly how it felt to the family as well. Emmanuel's possessions, it turned out, after a long, long struggle to locate them, which we participated in, I actually accompanied Nanetta, Emmanuel's widow, to the police station and tried to make several phone calls on her behalf to get to the bottom of it. His belongings were being stored in the dog kennels of a police station in Barking, East London, that had been set aside uh, as a quarantine space for any items that were caught up in an incident related to COVID-19. The police were trying to be especially careful that uh, any evidence that they'd gathered that could potentially be infected with the virus uh, wasn't circulating too freely. But as many of the cleaners that I interviewed Emmanuel's colleagues uh, pointed out, that same level of care was never taken with them in their workplace. They were instructed to come in and circulate freely. And many of them said to me, it often feels as if our lives are seen as disposable as seen as things which are not worthy of careful protection.
1: There was another sort of terrible shock as well, wasn't there, for the family when they finally received a notice of death from the coroner?
2: Yes, it took the family eight weeks to get an official death notice uh, from the coroner. And that death notice was based on the post-mortem report, which declared that the reason for Emmanuel's death was hypertensive heart disease, hypertension meaning high blood pressure. Now, we know that Emmanuel did suffer from high blood pressure and diabetes, both of which have been linked to a higher risk factor from coronavirus infection. But hypertension in and of itself is something that affects a large part of the population. It doesn't in itself explain why somebody might die. And as the post-mortem report itself notes, the paramedics and the police officers who were there on the scene at Emmanuel's death both concluded and categorised this as a COVID-19 death. Emmanuel's body ended up in an emergency morgue set up in London for COVID-19 fatalities. So the post-mortem report is quite odd Because it then goes on to say that there was no evidence that Emmanuel had any kind of flu-like illness before his death. We know that that's incorrect. We know that Emmanuel did have flu-like symptoms. Uh, He had aches, he had a temperature, and he had an incredibly bad fever, all of which are consistent with coronavirus. And we also know that it seems likely that he was exposed to coronavirus at work
4: under the the, the the certificate they didn't make, they didn't put anything he died. Yes, they say that they are on it, they are making investiga- investigation after the they let people know exactly what he died of. But so far we don't know what he died of. Yeah. And we, we, he said, was when I die, I would really like to be buried in my native country, my mm-hmm. native land, near my parents.
1: And at the MOJ... What happened after Emmanuel's death? Well, in the days after
2: Emmanuel's death, word began to spread that one of the cleaners had died from coronavirus. Not only that, but on the same day that Emmanuel died, another ancillary worker at the Ministry of Justice, this time not a cleaner, but an engineer who was outsourced to a different company, Kier, also passed away from suspected COVID-19. So as word of these two deaths, seemingly linked to coronavirus, began to spread amongst the cleaning staff, a sense of panic and alarm, understandably, set in. WhatsApp messages were flying back and forth between them, and cleaners were demanding, understandably, meetings with their managers. And they were shocked when, during those meetings, according to the cleaners, the managers and supervisors still insisted that there was no evidence that anybody at the Ministry of Justice had been infected with coronavirus.
1: The way reporting an issue like this always works is that you've spent a long time gathering evidence. Inevitably, we go to OCS, who are the employer, and the MOJ, whose facility um, they worked in, and, and we seek responses from them. What have they told you? The Ministry of
2: Justice replied with the line that it has maintained all along, which is simply to say, there is no evidence to suggest there is or ever has been a coronavirus outbreak at Petit France, which is the street on which the Ministry of Justice's headquarters are located. They also said that they keep in regular contact with their contractors to make sure employees have the appropriate protection and that they were grateful for all of the outsourced staff for working through the throughout the pandemic to make sure the buildings were safe for those who need to use them. They did not respond uh, to or deny any of the individual bits of evidence, of which we have several dozen, uh, that indicate that cleaners fell ill and that managers and supervisors were aware
1: of that illness. We should say Jack gave OCS the right to reply and they didn't respond to our questions. Jack, you've talked about going to the police station with Emmanuel's widow. You've had long conversations with Luis Eduardo and his wife. You've really inhabited this piece of reporting must have been quite an upsetting story to do. It was.
2: I think it would be hard for any journalist to work on a story like this and not become emotionally invested. I've followed this group of cleaners at the Ministry of Justice for two years now. I originally reported on them back in 2018 when they were going on strike in an attempt unsuccessfully to win a living wage. And so I've seen the ways in which Despite all the odds being stacked against them, linguistic differences, a lack of social and political and cultural capital, a sense of pervasive insecurity. You know, the the fact that they know that most of them could lose their jobs at any time. And in fact, one of the cleaners we interviewed for this story, who did self-isolate at home, had his contract terminated uh, while he was ill uh, and recovering with no explanation. But they've overcome that insecurity to band together and to fight back and demand some measure of justice and accountability, not only for their colleague Emmanuel who died, but for themselves. And so, although it's been emotionally a very distressing story and a very upsetting story, it has also strangely. Been an inspiring one too, and I think it tells us a lot about the kind of struggles that are going to shape what sort of Britain emerges on the other side
1: of the pandemic. I think that's right. We've worried about the question that taught us of how we live next, and you know that's a thing that can be refracted in so many ways. It's you know how do you how do you lead a a balanced life? How do you lead a compassionate life? How do you? make communities that have um, shown their resilience be stronger uh, going forward but if there's something that you really want to hang on to even while people are talking about the need for you know bringing the economy back to life and that's suddenly seeming to be a the greatest priority we have to address the fault lines of inequality that we're seeing everywhere and I just feel that coming to the end of the story of Luis Eduardo and Emmanuel that it just touches on all of those issues and it's a it makes you want to stand up and shout.
2: It does and thankfully the cleaners despite their limited resources are standing up and shouting uh, and I think we should be listening. You know Boris Johnson has declared that Britain is going to bounce forward stronger and better and more united than ever before. And as you say, a lot of that rhetoric that we get from the government is about making sure that the economy and society that existed before the pandemic can return. I think what the stories of Emmanuel and Louis Eduardo and the other cleaners at the Ministry of Justice show us is that the society and economy that existed before the pandemic was not working for millions of people and is not something that we can resurrect unthinkingly and unchangingly.
1: Jack, thank you so much for your reporting on this. I think it must have been an absolute trial to have lived with it for the last couple of months. But I really think you've done important work and I hope that people will be left with a lot to think about Thank you, Dave. It's been really good to chat. Thanks for listening today. If you've enjoyed the podcast, then I think there's a really good chance that you'll also, like a lot of the other stuff we do at Tortoise, there's a load of articles that you can read online. And because we're an open newsroom, there are tonnes of meetings that you can go to and you can help shape our journalism and the stories that we tell from wherever you are in the world. All you need to do is get our app. Just go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash pod trial for our 30-day free trial. And of course, if you like this podcast, share it or give us a review or just tell somebody about it. Thanks for listening and see you next week.
2: What would your... Message be to the managers at OCS and also to the British government that hires
3: those managers. cleaners. Okay, so to, to, to respect the, the cleaners because they are humans, so they need to respect the hum, human lives. The, we are people. claro, lo
0: Eh, salario digno, un salario digno, de acuerdo a que, como se trabaja ahí en ese edificio, el Ministerio de Justicia. Llamado Ministerio de Justicia, el Ministerio de la Injusticia. Porque ahí lo que menos hay es justicia, empezando por nosotros, por los cleaners
3: So you said that they should be paid better. You talk a lot about being a Ministry of Justice, but it's really a Ministry of Injustice. Hi, I'm Gemma Ware, host of the Conversation Weekly podcast. Each week I get to speak to some of the smartest people in the world as they connect their new research to the biggest news and issues of today. You'll get a bit of everything from how women are changing North Korea to the emerging science of interoception, our sixth sense, to the importance of intellectual humility. Follow the Conversation Weekly for new episodes every Thursday and read more stories direct from academic
4: experts every day on theconversation.com.